Hello and welcome to another episode of Homefront Histories. Today is a is a special day uh, for this for this podcast because we've got our first ever guest. Uh, he's bravely come on, uh, and uh, so you're not going to listen to to Robbie, Chris, and I drone on today. We've got someone genuinely interesting uh, who's going to talk about a fantastic project uh, that's taking place. Uh, so uh, please welcome uh, Joseph Quinn, who is project coordinator on Their Finest Hour. How are you doing, mate? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing yourself this morning? Yeah, really good. Really, really good. So, so you got in touch. Uh, we, well, we know each other anyway. Um, and I've been following this with real interest because it really fits into what we're trying to do with this with this podcast as well. Um, and so it's just great to get you on and, and to hear more about the project and, and some of the fantastic stories you're collecting. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about uh, about the finest hour? initiative where it's kind of come from and 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 kind of what the what the main main aims are sure uh, so their finest hour really is a project that has been more than 15 years um possibly as, as long as 20 years in the making um and really um what it's based on it's based on a model known as the oxford uh, community collections model which is a model uh, of crowdsourcing that was pioneered. It's digital crowdsourcing that was pioneered by our project lead, uh, Dr. Stuart Lee, who um, heads the project and who was the person responsible for um, overseeing um, a successful successful grant bid um, from the National Lottery Heritage Fund, who are our sponsors on this project. Yeah. Um, now, Stuart pioneered this um, working on the First World War. He began by doing a, a, a digital online project called um, um, uh, Poetry of the First World War, and it gradually transitioned from that to uh, Lies of the First World War and gathering collections, essentially, essentially that some of which ended up actually um, accessioned as part of the Bodleian uh, Library collections. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, but, but one... One particular uh, example Stuart gives of like the benefits of crowdsourcing is um, its ability to capture and save and preserve items either physically or digitally uh, that otherwise might have been lost. And he gives the example of a a scrapbook or a um, a photo album that um, had been chucked in a skip. And the photo album was a photo album compiled by an army chaplain who served during the First World War. And basically what had happened was um, the, um, the, the owners of the album had decided that they had no further use for it. And they put it in, but then they came across the initiative and then they rescued it from the skip. Lucky brought it into a collection day. And the images are absolutely extraordinary. You have like, like, like unparalleled, you have a picture of the chaplain. He documented the war through his camera at a time when it was actually not only difficult but actually i think prohibited yeah, to do yeah, so yeah. On the Western Front. but he documented the entire war and i think these images became quite famous and there's a picture of him um at the end of the war um sort of poking out of the barrel of a big bertha he's just <laughs> fitting right into the barrel of the big bertha and they're just absolutely incredible images that show us what life was like in the trenches and along the front line on the Western Front, in actually a way that was quite unique. Um, that was that was the thing. These photographs, we think we've seen all the images of the First World War, but these images that were within this photo album were just absolutely just extraordinary images. And to, this was pulled from a skip. 
And this, was, this is what, when it, it dawned on Stuart and the people he was working with, particularly in uh, the spin-off um, projects that came afterwards, lest we forget, and then the uh, European partner uh, project, Europeana 1914-18, which you've probably heard of, yeah, yeah. which was a pan-European and to a certain extent pan-global project, which captured um, essentially stories and images of objects, artifacts, original fo original photographs from all over Europe, including the Republic of Ireland, which right. is another story in itself. <laughs> but but essentially, um, it, it's from these First World War crowdsourcing initiatives uh, that their finest hour has sprung. Right. And the decision was that if we've done this with the First World War and done it extensively for the First World War and learned from that experience, it's time to apply this to the Second World War. But the reason, unlike with the First World War, the reason we're not doing it on the centenary, the reason we're trying to precede the centenary by at least 80 years in some cases, is because this conflict is still within living memory. Right. Whereas when they came around to the centenary of the First World War, it had passed from living memory. Correct. And therefore, the process of capturing the stories, the items and everything like that, had almost there was a disconnect yeah yeah, it yeah almost yeah. fallen out of context and actually knowledge of what that conflict had been like knowledge of the key events like we have this encyclopedic knowledge of the second world war people did have that to a certain extent with regard to the first world war but then that suddenly disappeared and the people yeah. who brought these stories and objects in had become disconnected from the conflict to such an extent that they didn't really understand or realize the context of the stories that they told, which were only fragmentary. Yeah, so the, exactly we're right. doing this initiative now is to make sure that we capture it at a moment when it's beginning to slip from living memory in order to understand how the stories of the Second World War have been passed from one generation to the next. And that's really the key utility of our project. Unbelievable, that's, that's such a great thing. I mean, I've got, so just, um, just yesterday, the guy I play football with knows I'm a bit of a, you know, military history geek. And he said, look, I've got these medals. Any ideas what they are? Uh, there were First World War medals, like the Great War Medal and the Victory Medal. And I just did the most basic research and found out he thought they were his grand, great granddad's medals. It turned out to be a kind of long lost great uncle who they'd never heard of, who was 19 in the Royal Marines Light Infantry and died during the Battle of Jutland. And they had, they had no idea about this guy. So I found a little clip. It's just it's just lost in that yeah. in that time, you know. Yeah. Family didn't talk about it because they were all too heartbroken. So kind of, um, he just got yeah, lost in history. And that was this is another thing which separates the First World War from the Second World War. The First World War is a conflict that people didn't talk about. Yes, it was only laterally in the nineteen eighties and nineties that programs began to capture the stories of veterans while the last few veterans were still alive. We didn't have that problem with the Second World War to the same extent because I may, maybe it was to do with the fact that it, the Second World War was a horrific conflict, but the fact of the matter was, I think the British experience of the Second World War was perhaps less horrifying to a, to a degree than it had been in the First World War. The First World War had been- I think it was a shock, wasn't it? The First yeah, World War was, was a shock. shock. Yes. And, okay. uh, and and also and also I guess you know from you know the stuff that I do, well and, and the home front history podcast is this well, the Second World War directly impacted every single person every day during the entire 
part of that conflict, whether it's rationing, whether it's railings being taken down, whether it was losing your husband, whether it's actually fighting in the conflict, whether it was volunteering for the home guard, whether it's you're in the land. Sure. Every single person was tangentially connected to this conflict. Whereas the First World War, lots of people lots, lost lots of people. But in terms of the people still in Britain, there was a bit of, bit of rationing and mm. you know, BTC. But essentially, day-to-day life was, was pretty much the same. The Second World War was fundamentally changed. And so, you know, people, you can't help but talk about it during, you know, during, during, during that period. And tying in with the main theme of your podcast, Andy, one of the things that I would say about this particular project and one of the things that makes the Second World War quite different from the First World War is that the First World War was, from a British experience, primarily a mobilisation mainly of youth, unfortunately, arguably a lost youth, a lost generation that mobilized and went out to the trenches and kept going out in draft after draft. And um, essentially you had a home front and you had the, you know, the war on the Western Front, but it was an altogether different kind of war to what was experienced during the Second World War, where actually, if you think about it, with the exception of North Africa, with the exception later of the Italian campaign of Burma and other theatres, um, it was a war of the home front. A large portion of the forces were retained on, uh, at home in the UK. Uh, you had the Home Guard, and for, for nearly four years between Dunkirk and D-Day, you really had uh, the concentration of air, naval, and army forces together with the general population and together with everybody else that arrived yeah at home in Britain. It was actually, in a large part, a home front war. Yeah, absolutely. The second, this, this is one of the things that will, I think will come out very strongly in this project in a way that it didn't come out with the First World War precursor, lest we forget. I think what's going to emerge is we will have the stories and we have a big concentration on ordinary stories, the ordinary, and dare I say the mundane, of the humdrum of everybody's life on the home front we're looking at, we're just as interested in the experience of the ordinary civilian as we are in the service man or woman yeah. we're we're interested we're interested in unique stories we're interested in stories from marginalized groups we're interested we're, we're interested in all of this but we have a particular strong focus on how the war was fought on the home front and how it was waged by school children by grannies by grandfathers serving in the Home Guard or in other capacities, you know, the un, the great unsung heroes of this conflict, you know, manning the NAFI vans and um, are working in the women's um, voluntary services, um, which was arguably, I think, for a long time, the largest army um, in existence in the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, these are the stories that we're looking to capture, and we have just as much of an interest in these stories as we have in the stories of people who served in the Atlantic convoys or in bomber command or in the frontline uh, units of the British army. Yeah, hundred percent. And do you know what? I think that's, you know, what we find here and, you know, with the stuff I do with the, uh, Orcs units and home guard and, and the stuff that I tend to specialize on is that people now really, really relate to that home front and what, what ordinary people were doing. I mean, I know the guys who were who were fighting the forces were ordinary because they were called up or they volunteered. But the people who stayed here, so people like us who were who were still in their town or village, what was their everyday experience? And that, and because we're losing that generation now, and you can't ask them directly, um, 
which makes this project so, so crucial, um, that actually I think there's a real interest from the general public about this more than more than there ever has been before. And certainly people of kind of our age, whose perhaps grandparents were involved and are now, you know, losing those grandparents, they want they they really want to know what, you know, what did granddad do as an ARP messenger? What what was his role? What what kind of dangers did he face? And then, you know, having to relate to that. And I guess, you know, the war in Ukraine is a really <clears throat> has yeah. kind of brought it up again that you you see all these images of relatable, you know, Europeans going through, you know, war on their doorstep. And it kind of brings it all back, doesn't it, to 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 what these guys what these guys would have gone through. So incredibly important project. So so like many congratulations on the set out because it's just we you know really really important. So what the things that you're collecting, you're talking about kind of stories and objects, is it? So yes. is it everything? It's everything. It's a, it's any item of physical heritage, um, whether it has whether it has a huge historical significance or huge personal or emotional significance. I'll give you one example. One story that we publicised, we produced a short video on this, was um, the story of the lucky rupee. And this was a story submitted uh, by a particular contributor. Our contributors, anybody who contributes to our archive, by the way, is known as a participant. Okay. So um, one of the participants who contributed a story to the archive was a very short story. It was like, it was literally, th this is the kind of stories that we tend to get. Sometimes we get long ones, half the time we get long ones, but sometimes we get very, very short, short stories. And this, this was four or five sentences. A very short paragraph. It's like that Ernest Hemingway short story, <laughs> you know, yeah. sort of um, uh, for sale baby shoes never wore. It, 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 it's exactly like that. It's really, really compacted, but it's absolutely beautiful and it's extraordinary. And the story is very simple. It's this rupee coin, which has a large cratered hole at the edge of it. So a, lar a large part of the rupee coin has been dented and destroyed. It's like something impacted on it. Right. And the story is basically this. My, my father uh, served in the Royal Artillery. He was on the front line in Burma. Uh, one day, a Japanese sniper's bullet entered his, the breast pocket of his tunic. And it passed through his cigarette case, passed through his Bible, and it was only stopped by a single rupee coin, probably from his time on leave, wherever, wherever in India, right, right. Uh, jangling at the back of the Bible in the cigarette case. Wow. Um, at the back. And it was the rupee coin that stopped the bullet. It had passed through everything else, passed through the Bible, passed through the cigarette case, but stopped at the rupee coin. And the story is very simple. If that coin had not been there, um, it would the bullet would have entered my father's heart. Wow. And the person telling that story, he, he didn't say this, of course, in the story, but the person telling that story, ergo, wouldn't, would never have existed. Yeah. And that's, and, the, and his father kept that rupee coin. And that is that lit, tiny little story of five short sentences in a compacted paragraph and that image of the rupee coin, that it, it's, it's, it's such a short story. And yet, you could you almost feel like you could write a novel about it. Yeah, absolutely. Isn't it's that incredible? Huge. It's incredible. And that's an example of the kind of stories that we are getting. And it's it's it, it's stories with objects, but sometimes it's objects with stories, okay. like so. 
Um, and we've we've gotten some really, really remarkable submissions. I mean, a gentleman came to I I, I ran a pop up pop up event at the um, first IWM festival that was held in Duxford a couple of months ago. And uh, a gentleman who's uh, who had two uncles, one who served in the London Irish Rifles, uh, which, by the way, is terror is connected with the Royal Ulster Rifles, and I'll get to this in a moment. Right. Um, he was in the London Irish Rifles, so he was serving the Thirty Eight Irish Brigade in, 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 during the Italian campaign. And uh, the other uncle, who was originally Royal Ulster Rifles, was apparently personally recruited by Paddy Main um, right. into into um, First SAS One SAS. Wow. And um, so he had one uncle in the SAS, one in the London Irish Rifles, and um, and the the uncle in the London Irish Rifles brought back a black uh, felt fez, which he told the family had been taken off Benito Mussolini after he was executed. In <laughs> right. Okay. He told the family that. Now there are two ways we can handle this particular story. So we have. We have the accession of the story. We have the we have the um, the object, and it is this is this is this is a very, I, I I I examine the fez myself. It's very identifiably worn and aged, and it's very clear. And it 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 it, it looks exactly like what Mussolini would have worn, apart from the fact that it doesn't have the embroidered eagle on the front. Instead, right. it has a short fascist symbol. But he kind of scaled down on the paraphernalia on the uniform, the insignia and things after he took over as the head of the Salo Republic um, in the later part of the war. Yeah, after so his game, that, came back. That, yes, so that part of it could be consistent. On the other hand, the Fez could have belonged to a local Italian fascist bigwig. We right. don't know. So we don't know what they are. We can verify that it belonged to Mussolini. Yeah. But what we can say is we can take that object and we are taking the stories. This is what's unique about this project. We are taking the stories from the people as they give them. We are taking them to a certain extent at their word. Right. It could have misspellings. The stories could actually, as, as historians ourselves, we could immediately recognize that these stories are factually inaccurate. Right. And we might be tempted to correct them or say, well, we can't say that it's Mussolini's hat or, well, that that battle actually didn't happen at that particular date because actually that happened and whatnot, ergo, the continuum of events couldn't be, as you say. Yeah. We don't do that. Right. We take the stories as they are given to us. And we are taking this story as it is given to us. We are going to take this gentleman at his word, who is taking his uncle at his word. Here is Mussolini's hat. I brought, brought it back. And there are two reasons for that. One, we want the story as it is given to us because we want to be able to assess the public's knowledge, the state of their knowledge, of the Second World War and the way in which they contextualize the family stories of, of military and home front or you know or civilians yeah, yeah, yeah. during the Second World War and how they marry that up with their factual knowledge of the war. And the second reason is what if it is Mussolini's hat? <laughs> yeah. what, what, if, what if this simple, humble soul a man from a, a loyalist working class background in Belfast? who probably joined up without a penny in his pocket, you know, serving for a beleaguered, economically stagnant democracy off the coast of Western Europe, yeah. going toe-to-toe -to -toe with a major, major fascist dictatorship. What if that soldier somehow managed to survive this massive ordeal 
having gone into it with nothing and went through it all, survived it all, and then end up, ended up coming home with the hat that this almighty, all-powerful, unstoppable <laughs> dictator once wore in his head as he trumped around Rome and other places, boasting of uh, a thousand-year empire and, uh, you know, sort of making the Mediterranean an inland sea. What if that was actually true? What does, that, what does that say about the ordinary, humble British soldier? Um, fighting, you know, going away and fighting for for king and country, for hearth and home, and yeah. for the values that we hold dear in this country. What does that say about the strength of that ordinary everyman? It, I, I, think, I think it says everything, really. I agree. And do you know what? I think that's what I do. I do think that's what, you know, that the, again, referring back to the stuff that I do, so the, the auxiliary units and special duties branch in Section 7, all this really highly secret stuff, we have, to, now we have to almost exclusively rely on family tales and myths and village gossip and and you know as a you know a serious historian in inverted commas can't doesn't rely on that has to has, has to double check has to you know all of that stuff that makes good history but actually when it comes to it i i found that 90 percent of the stories of the myths of the rumors have an element of truth in them have there is an element which you can grasp onto and then link it to other stuff so dismissing it entirely as just you know hearsay or you know rumor or that can't be right i think does away with a load of stuff that that, that actually you know that 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 families do themselves oh granddad's talking about Mussolini's hat again what a load of bollocks is it is it yeah, do you know yeah. that is that is, is that true it might you know there is there is elements and and just yeah, I think that's a yeah, a really interesting way of doing it, of just taking it, taking it at the word. It just gives you some amazing stories. Mm, absolutely. I mean, look, I could give you, I could give you a number of examples of stories like this. I can mean, uh, but but, but I, I won't get into it in this particular podcast. But it, you do raise a very interesting point. It is, like, I mean, we never really considered um, the concept of mythology or the mythologization of the conflict. Um, at the beginning, except for the grander sort of narrative of the war. Yeah. And they, they, but in terms of individual myths about specific stories from the war, I don't think we really consider that at the outset of this project, but it is something that is now coming in very, very strongly in terms of with, with every, almost every single submission that we are getting. So 95% of, um, of what we are receiving, we are, we are taking as factual, but we are, we are prepared to accept that a certain amount of will either be inaccurate or will have been mythologized to a certain extent. Yeah, but, yeah. Also, but, but within this conundrum, we have also the wider conundrum, which we are actually actively trying to crack within this project, of the way in which the wider conflict itself has been mythologized within the British mind. Uh, and also and also within the Commonwealth mind as well. This is a British and Commonwealth project. It's not right. just confined to the UK. And it also, to a certain extent, covers Ireland as well. Right. So this um, the, the, this particular mythology that we're trying to tease out is, you know, sort of it's things like the Britain alone narrative, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, or yeah. you know, us alone, or um, the, the the idea that that you know, sort of that that the challenges that we are experiencing in contemporary modern Britain today um, that we tend to hark back to 
the Second World War, to, uh, to Dunkirk, to the Battle of Britain, to the great crises that we faced when, when we're faced with the COVID-19 pandemic, the war in Ukraine, every, every crisis that we've, uh, and also uh, Brexit as well is coming yeah. within our purview. Um, but, but we don't overtly ask this particular question. We have framed the question a particular way and we have five questions in total and they survey one people's knowledge, one their thoughts and, and, and opinions about the war and the wartime generation. Three, the kind of words, the words they would use to describe the wartime generation or to describe those times. Yeah. yeah um, these were actually the choice of words that people tend to take are important. And we will, this will be, this will provide fascinating data for us as researchers when this project comes to a close. Mm. And the last thing is essentially the way in which the war we're seeking to understand the way in which the war has been mythologized as well. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I, I mean, I, the, the book I'm writing at the moment is all about that, uh, getting rid of that myth that Britain was alone, mm -hmm. weak, unprepared. I mean, we were a massive empire. <laughs> a massive yeah. empire. So, you know, but, I, but, but you're right. And every single like crisis that comes up, there's always mentions of, Blitz spirit and you know Dunkirk spirit. You know we'll we'll get through that. Blah blah blah. blah. But it's, it it's really interesting how the Second World War continues in every way to 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 influence the way we think about our lives these days. I mean it's mental, isn't it? I mean it's near, it's, it's eighty years ago, uh, yeah, it but it was such such a huge thing that impacted and has such a huge impact on the population that it it's still you know still impacting us now every day. It's incredible, which makes this project again. Just really interesting, really interesting. Have you got a? Have you got a kind of? I know that the rupee, the rupee story is amazing. Uh, have you got? A, is it? What, what's your favourite object that's come in? Doesn't have to be big. Doesn't have to be. What's what's your? What's the thing that you thought? Oh my god, that is incredible. So my favourite story, Andy, um, and I'm I'm I must confess to a certain amount of bias in this respect. <laughs> I uh, I warmed. I warmed to a 100, now 103-year-old Brazilian gentleman called Oswaldo Saragiotto. Now, this is the thing. This project is meant to be about the British people. It's meant to be about the people of the Commonwealth. So it's meant to have a primary focus on that. We also take in uh, people from, you know, sort of European exiles, people from the continent of Europe, uh, refugees from national socialism, you know, some Jewish refugees from the continent of Europe. Holocaust survivors, of course, um, and you know, marginalized groups, um, African soldiers, um, service personnel from the Caribbean, and um, U.S. service personnel, and uh, you know, and as I said, Commonwealth personnel as well are included in this. But we also are taking into we're, we're, we'll take any story. We'll take it from friend or foe <laughs> right and <laughs> enemy stories are important as well you know yeah we absolutely plenty, plenty of stories of the of the enemy as well coming into our archive but um another story that we we've gotten is like uh, this is an example of a forgotten ally and uh, we do not realize that the brazilians were our allies in the second world war right um, and that they sent they sent an expeditionary force which fought in italy yeah fought in northern italy they used, um, they initially used their own equipment at the beginning, but uh, later they were virtually indistinguishable from uh, from American soldiers because they wore the same kit, they wore the same helmets, and they used 
pretty much American gear, wow. um, but they fought in a particular style. And the gentleman that I interviewed, uh, Oswaldo Sergiotto, uh, was a member of the 1st Brazilian Expeditionary Division um, that fought under uh, General Marquenas um, in the north of Italy. And he was a veteran of the, bon the Battle of Monte Castello. And right. the battle, not, not to be confused with the Battle of Monte Cassino, <laughs> uh, which it regularly is. Like uh, the Battle of Monte Castello was one that happened towards the end of the war, and it was a very hard-fought fight. They fought alongside the first Brazilian Expeditionary Division, fought a alongside shoulder to shoulder with the American Tenth Mountain Division, which was an elite uh, um, American crack American division uh, that actually struggled at the Battle of Monte Castello. And it was the Brazilians, um, like the Poles at Monte Cassino, the Brazilians were the one that broke the line of Monte Castello. Wow. So they were actually very good fighters and the whole reputation the smoking cobras is very well deserved given yeah, their yeah. performance they they performed extremely well and not only that but the localities in that particular area that particular valley of of uh, northern italy um have remembered what the Ital what the brazilians did oh, um, wow. and also there is a connection many of the soldiers including oswaldo sargiotto had a connection to italy because they were the children of Italian immigrants that uh, migrated to Brazil uh, during the early part of the interwar period. There was a huge, wow. there were huge waves of Italian migration to South America, and particularly to Brazil and Argentina. Wow. Uh, Oswaldo Sargiotto was one of possibly hundreds of soldiers that were within the Brazilian Expeditionary Division that actually arrived initially um being able to speak what was actually originally their mother tongue which wow. was a, and they were able to so the brazilians had no problem communicating with the locals but they did have um they did have a a, a rather odd experience when they arrived at the port of naples which is the main port where a lot of allied forces were coming in mm. um prior to their you know sort of deployment further north and um, when they arrived they arrived in their original brazilian army uniforms which looked at dead sight very close to a, a German uniform. <laughs> and when <laughs> no. the Italians, when the Italian, when the when the Neapolitans saw uh, the Brazilians disembark, they looked at them and confused them with prisoners of war. The only thing is they had guns on. And they were they were pointing at them and they're, they're like Tedeschi, Tedeschi, whatever like that, these weapons, whatever. And they were there one Italian gentleman goes up to an American MP on the dockside and says, you, you, take your gun, shoot them, shoot them, shoot them. <laughs> yeah, and it was just, and, and the, the Brazilians, when they were being verbally abused by these Neapolitans, you know, in very colorful language. Yes. Like, no, 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 no. They were like in Italian, you know, sort of sons of Italian immigrants. They were yeah. like, no, 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 no. Brazilian, Brazilian, we're not German. No Tedeschi, no Tedeschi. And they had, they had a hard time initially trying to convince people on the Italian mainland that they weren't part of, you know, that Castle Ring did not manage to send a, a, a detachment <laughs> south. You know, no, we're not. We just got here. And they said, where are you from? And it was just like Brazil. And they said, Brazil isn't involved in this war. Um, so there was huge confusion. Yeah. Eventually they got their uniforms and whatnot. And you asked about an object. Long story short, uh, the object, my favorite object, is a mortar bomb that Oswaldo Sargiotto retained from his time in the military. He has a, a mortar shell 
I believe that would have been standard issue within the US forces and was certainly standard issue in the Brazilian army. He has, he, because he was part of a mortar platoon. Right. And he kept, kept uh, what is, uh, when I saw the mortar shell during the interview, it was his son, uh, sorry, his grandson, um, his grandson, Tiago, acted, who, who speaks virtually fluent English, right. acted as a translator for his, gra for his grandfather. And uh, Thiago um, had the uh, mortar bomb placed directly in front of him while he was doing the interview. And I, I, I cracked the joke. I said, I, I do hope that uh, mortar bomb has been deactivated. And um, Thiago picked it up and he just went like that, slammed it down. <laughs> he said, yeah, it's deactivated. Um, so, um, you know, they were very, very, very humorous. And... Um, <laughs> uh, uh, Oswaldo had a lot of very humorous stories and there was a huge amount of material objects that he submitted and some wonderful photographs as well and uh, the particular photograph in terms of another object that's also my favourite mm. um, is uh, the photograph of him and some of the lads that he served with and um, there's about maybe 12 of them in this photograph and right. they're all crowded around the jeep sitting all around it clumbed over it as, Amer as you would expect American GIs to yeah, do yeah, yeah. in an Italian town and there's an Italian warehouse in the background. And if you looked at the photograph, if you didn't look very closely at it, you'd swear they were American GIs, like right. you'd swear it was something from Band of Brothers. Right. But, but um, yeah, th this, is, um, this is just, it's one of these stories. It's one of these stories that came to me. It was totally by accident. Um, I found... Tiago, his his grandson's um, initial contact with our project, buried in an inbox somewhere, and thank God I, 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 I discovered it and I, I followed it up because this oh, is mate. this is just an this is this is an untold and virtually unknown story. Hundred um, percent. That people need to know. Yeah. And even though it's not quite a part, quite part of our purview to tell the Brazilian story. In the Second World War, another objective of our project is to dig out the unknown, lesser-known stories and yeah. reveal them to the general public. It's about broadening people's knowledge. Always carry your gas mask. See that your blackout is complete. Above all, don't stand staring at the sky. Get to cover at once. Isn't that just amazing? And I think I think there's a there's a thing. You know, because the Second World War was such a huge part in in the near past, that that there's a perception that we that we know everything. <clears throat> what 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 is there to learn about the Second World War? We must know everything by now, surely. There is so much out there, and you must be getting these stories all the time of like yeah. that just still blow your mind. You know, we you and I deal with this stuff mm. like every day, and every day I'm getting stuff through that just blows my mind. It just and people just don't, you know, don't even relate it to as, as it's important or just haven't told anyone. But there's so much still out there to to to, to find Absolutely. and to learn. And to, it's just amazing. Absolutely. And on that point, Andy, one of the things I, I need to tell you is that the, the discoveries, some discoveries come from the archive. But like, to be quite frank, I mean, you really need and we do have a small army of researchers, you know, professional historians, people like yourself, people like yourself who do regularly go into the archives, we trawl through the records, and we find these gold nuggets all the time. Um, but we don't, all, we don't have the time to search for them all the time, right. and we don't have the time to document them, or we, we don't always have the ability or may not have the opportunity 
we can't cover everything. We can only do our best. Right. One of the things, one of the other things is that's that's archives where stuff is sitting perfectly preserved. What about the archive that exists that everybody holds in common or holds to themselves? What yeah. I like to call the greatest archive. Yeah. And the yeah. greatest archive is what's held in people's lofts. It's held in people's <laughs> attics. It's held in their cupboards. It's held in their garages. It's it, it or it's buried or it's under floorboards. Um, there, there's a submission that we're about to receive. Um, and it's a few household wartime items, including cigarette packets, ma packets of matches, and a few other, um, a few other sort of, you know, sort of commercial items, um, which were common in the Second World War, but now no longer exist, that were found under floorboards in a dentist's surgery um, um, only about a few months ago. And uh, somebody got in contact with our project and would you take images or, or, of these particular objects? And we said, sure, we'll take those because that is a discovery. That is a fine. They may be just items that, you know, if we were back during the Second World War, if we were done with them, we'd throw them away. No, yeah. But a child, some child, a young boy probably, took these and hoarded them away and put them under floorboards and forgot about them. So that is a time capsule. Yeah, under these floorboards that we've chosen to capture and photograph, and that is the kind of that that's the kind of story story that we're talking about. We're talking about time capsules of information. We're talking about people's personal items and collections, people's personal stories, and down to as something as simple as a photograph on a mantelpiece or right. a photograph on a shelf right. that may have a small story attached to it. Because you know that may well be lost as well. You know, yeah. I, I was on I was I was on holiday with my wife very recently, and we were in the uh, town of Tavira, in South Portugal, and um, like many parts of the Algarve, Tavira is um, a place that's very popular um, with uh, British and Irish uh, tourists. Mm -hmm. uh, you have a lot of expats living out there. Yeah. Um, and uh, a direct consequence of this is you have items of significance to um, British buyers that end up being sold at the local flea markets. And one thing that I came across, I came across a few items, a, uh, a magazine, an original, an original program from uh, the, from Queen Elizabeth's uh, coronation in 1953, a program of the service at, um, wow. at Westminster Abbey. Uh, I don't ask me, I didn't buy it. Um, and a few other items, but the, the object that I wish I had bought, which I had not bought, was a picture of a very handsome young man with a mustache wearing a Royal Flying Corps uh, uniform or a uniform of Royal Flying Corps insignia. Yeah. And that photograph was there at that flea market that had belonged to some family, some family member, and it had been left behind. He, the person who was selling it at the flea market said he got it during a, a clear out of a, of a flat or an apartment, whoever had either died or sold it on. And that, that photograph, of that young man is in a flea market in South Portugal. Yeah. Totally disconnected from the relatives of um of the of the person whose image is captured within the photograph. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and you we we have no story. We all, all we had at the back at the back of the photograph was uh, the contact details uh, and an old telephone number from the 1990s of the person who framed the photograph. That's it. That's all we have. Um, we don't have a story with it. And so that is, we have an image of a, of a serviceman, uh, but the story is for all intents and purposes lost. Yeah, 
that is the utility of this project. We need people to come forward. We need more. We need more submissions. We have a lot coming into our archive, but it's not nearly as much as we were hoping for at this stage of the project. And if, if I'm honest, we have let, we've we've a year to go before the project runs its course, and we we need people to use this project. It's an opportunity for you to preserve the stories, to avoid a scenario like that happening, to avoid yeah. a photograph of a treasured and venerated member of, of, of somebody's family who risked life and limb for, for their country um, and for the values we all hold dear. Um, it's to make sure that that story isn't lost and that, that they don't become disconnected yeah, uh, yeah. from their family and, we, and that we capture that before it's too late. Right, so let's... People, let's let's get this stuff to, to to Joe. What's the best way? How do how do people connect with you? How do how do the how do people get get this stuff to you? Okay, well, there are two ways in which in, in like I mean, there's another way. Of course, you can donate to the project. But listen, I'm not I'm not on to sell. I'm not, I'm not on your podcast to ask for money. Uh, there are there are two main ways in which we want people to to help our project. Uh, one, we want participants to come forward with their stories and objects and submit them. Either come to an event, come to a collection day event. You can visit our website, um, theirfinesthour.org. That's theirfinesthour, all one word, dot org. And you go in you, and you'll see the website. You'll see a tab bar above and you can go to events and you will see a list. We're updating the list all the time of events that we are running right throughout the UK. By the time this project is done, uh, the amount of events that we'll have run will probably be into the hundreds. We'll probably, uh, I'd say, a minimum of 150 to 200 events throughout the UK is wow. what we would have run by the time this project is through. But our 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 aim now, we're we're just going for it. We're, our aim is to get 400 events. Right. Uh, we're we're actually um, we're contemplating trying to organise a mass collection day event multiple events happening simultaneously all oh. over the country on November the 11th okay wow. we're, we're, we're going to we're going to try and make this happen but the thing about it, it, it this is just in the planning stages at the moment but for the mo for the time being we have events adding on to the calendar we have libraries and archives um, local history groups community centers parish halls schools they are all coming to us they're all agreeing to host a collection day event we have large institutions as well one of the biggest events that we'll be running will be held at the national archives queue uh, in the early part of next year so we've already we're we're already right. in the process of arranging that, so we've um so we've got um we've got twelve what we call joint events. These are kind of these are partner partnership events within with uh, major institutions. And uh, the first joint event we're going to be hosting um it's going to be hosted by the Linen Hall Library in Belfast right um, on June seventeenth. So that's our first major joint event, and we have smaller events happening. We we just recently had um a, a, events at Dumfries in Scotland. And also a, at Malvern, um, a Malvern Library as well, right. uh, and those events happen on the same day. In September, we'll have about twelve events running in a single weekend. Wow! So you know, it's get, the the calendar is getting quite crowded. So there will be lots of events running throughout the country. And if you don't feel comfortable using the internet to submit your story from the comfort of your own home. I'll get to that in a minute. You can come to one of our events. If, however, you can't come to an event, if you don't feel like going to an event, if you don't feel like socializing or if it's not possible for you to make an event, you can submit the story uh, direct from the comfort of your own home. It's very easy to do if you're computer literate. 
um, you can just go to theirfinesthour.org um, and click share your story. There's a button, share your story when you go in directly to the homepage, or you can go to the top tab and you'll find share your story, click on that. And it takes you through to a, a link and it's essentially like a questionnaire form. And you just answer all the questions, fill it all out as best you can. Try and go into as much detail when you're asked to get, talk about your story. Try and go into as much detail as you possibly can. But if you don't have a huge amount of detail, just submit the story in short. A short right. paragraph would be fine. Right. And there's a facility where you can upload images of objects, images of original photographs. And you can even upload um, uh, you can upload um, PDFs of memoirs of you know your family members um, right. re recollections of the war. You can upload you can upload um, word documents. You can upload anything you like, um, and you can actually you can make repeat submissions. If you don't get everything in the first submission, you can actually come back and resubmit the story, and in order to um, submit further images of objects and items you can do as many as you want you don't need to constantly repeat the same submission um, yeah. one and once you've made the submission once you've agreed to your terms and conditions uh, that is that agreeing to the terms and conditions include that's giving your consent to give your story and images of your objects and items and documents to our online archive and also that you agree that we can in certain circumstances use uh, um, these stories for media and promotional purposes like what i'm doing right now all right uh, just uh, just not for profit this is a not-for-profit yeah, yeah. project it's just to promote the project right uh, and uh, we'll ask you in advance before we decide to use this material Brilliant. for promotional purposes well, i think every listener has yeah. must have something they so i'm just thinking now i've got my my granddad was an arp messenger i've got his shrapnel collection mm. upstairs uh which is full of like incendiary bomb tales and oil bomb Incredible. That, that like just unbelievable and his collection of war magazines from the from the that's that and the stories well, that he told us an arp messenger are like mental well uh, andy all you have to do all you have to do if you're interested in submitting that story if that if if you feel comfortable it's only if you feel comfortable sharing but if you do feel comfortable sharing the story and if you want to make sure it's preserved share it because you know you have to consider the possibility it might be lost yeah 100 percent and what I would say, what I would say to you is you could, I'll give you an example, just very briefly. You could just, um, you could just, you could go in to share your story on our website and you have the ability to name your own story. So give this, we ask you to give the story a title at the very top of the form. And you could, you could just simply type in my grandfather's, uh, um, my, AR, my, my ARP grandfather's shrapnel collection. Yeah. And you can submit multiple pictures taken you know I'm, I'm i'm i get the suspicion you're an excellent photographer andy <laughs> um so uh, i submit all the images of you know all the various shrapnel bits from that collection and then you can also within the same form you can detail all the mad stories that he told you when you yeah, were amazing amazing and, and and what's what what's the so you're going to collect all these stories Make sure they're not lost, and they're going to be is they're they're in an archive, right? Is this is, is this like a publicly accessible library? Yeah, this this is a this is a digital online archive. Now, the system that we are using to capture these stories is a system called Amica, and it's a um, it's a commonly used system for crowdsourcing purposes. It's um, safe and easy to use. 
Uh, it's very well protected. We have, you know, excellent security and firewalls. And um, this is the um, this is the system that we're using to gather the information. Right. When, when the project formally uh, wraps up, we'll be wrapping. We will be taking direct submissions right up until around May June, twenty twenty four. But we will not be running any more uh, events past uh, the beginning of April 2024. Right. So because right. we have to prepare the archive for release and we will be releasing the archive in another format. Um, we will be releasing everything with the exception maybe of one or two submissions that might be, you know, that could be slightly offensive or obscene. Or, you know, we have to curate this collection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. 90, I would say 99.9% of what we have so far will be released. It'll be released in its entirety to the to the entire general public, to a global mm -hmm. audience uh, on a free-to-use format. And there will be wow. no... no it's that, that's, that's what we are, because this is a funded project. It is funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund to the tune of almost a quarter of a million. And, you know, our obligation is to educate and our obligation is also as people are generously contributing this material to us for digital preservation and for sharing it is our obligation to share this um completely free and it, it, this is totally not for profit the only thing we're going to get out of it is a huge amount of uh, very very rich data which we're yeah. going to use for scholarly peer review papers which by the way we don't get paid anything for either which i think is a travesty but anyway <laughs> um, <laughs> No, but uh, it, it'll it'll inform our scholarly outputs. It'll be very good for scholarly research and whatever, and you know all the all the kind of things you imagine us boffins at Oxford doing. Uh, this is basically this is basically what we're going to use it for. But everything else is going to be it's going to be for you. It's going to be for you, the public. What you give to us, we will give back. Amazing. That's how it's going um, what what an incredible what an incredible project, Joe. Just hats off to you. Just amazing. One last uh, thing. One last yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. We're also we're also looking to recruit um, an army. Um, you know, I'm I'm reminded of the line from uh, um, Jerome 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 McDevitt. Uh, is it the actor? Or, no, sorry, Jerome Flynn, um, the actor in um, the uh, recently released uh, Yellowstone spin-off, 1923. Uh, we don't need an army. We can borrow one. You know. <laughs> And this is what, so what I'm trying. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to um, um, borrow, borrow a, 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 a you know an elite force, um, perhaps of independent company strength. Uh, I don't know. Um, but um, the bottom line is that we need we need volunteers to come forward. We have over 120 registered and trained volunteers that are spread right throughout the UK. They are affiliated with museums, libraries, archives, schools, all all the kind of institutions that we mentioned. Um, we need trained volunteers with our project to help run the events. These events do not happen without the volunteers. And again, I'm emphasizing the voluntary nature. I'm 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 conscious of the fact that you know, you know, it, a lot of what we're asking for is voluntary. We're ask we are asking for people to give. But one of the things I would say is that it is for a very worthy cause. Yeah. There's a great camaraderie between the volunteers when they get together for the collection day events. And, and there is a, a feeling, particularly, it's a very special experience when you organize a collection day event and people start coming in one by one by one, and then they start unveiling their treasure trove. Oh. It's absolutely unbelievable. It's a, a collection day event is an absolutely amazing 
riveting, electrifying experience. Yeah, Everybody's experiencing. And we we just we need we need more volunteers. And what once we've once you've come forward as a volunteer, we will train you through a free online training session event, which I will run. And um, and then after after your training is done, you can either sign up to assist with an event near you, or what we very much encourage you to do is run your own event. Right. The training the training will equip you. Uh, with all the where it all and we give you all the materials that you need necessary to actually make your own event happen and to run it yourself and it's very it it, it it's a formulated process but once you know how to do it it's actually very easy it's just step by step Amazing. Um, and if if people well anybody who's listening to this can take the initiative and take the time to make an event happen in your area by by doing that, what you are doing is you are increasing the coverage of the project and you are making it possible for people who don't have access to the Internet and who don't have the ability to get to an event that's happening 50 miles down the road. You're, you're making it possible for them to attend something near you where they can bring that very precious object or that absolutely unbelievable story yeah. that nobody's ever heard that may be lost unless they're able to make that event yeah. and tell it so it can be captured and preserved um, for posterity. And this, is what, yeah. this is what we're talking about. We're talking about, we're talking about capturing this for posterity, capturing it for future generations. And that's how we want people to think about this. So it's a once-off opportunity. I doubt there, there may be more crowdsourcing initiatives like this uh, happening in the future, but um, we can't guarantee that that's going to be the case. Um, but certainly at this very unique moment, at this moment when the, me when the living memory of the Second World War is starting to slip from our fingers, we have to act now and we need to move to make sure that these stories are preserved. Well, look, if anyone's not moved by that rallying cry, you need to have a long, hard look at yourself. Let's let's get in touch. Let's let's mobilise people. Let's get going. Um, what what a fantastic uh, project, Joe! Thanks so much for coming on, mate. No um, problem. Best of luck with it. I will be certainly getting the shrapnel down uh, from the bedroom now, uh, and we'll get going. And do you know what? I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna get in touch and we'll, I'll get volunteering as well because it's, that's excited me. That's 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 what I'm all about. That's perfect. I mean, listening just sitting and listening to stories from the Second World War. What's not to like? That's, 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 that's incredible, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and also, I just wanted to say that the lads actually, uh, in We Have Ways, uh, have been very supportive of us, and we're um, we believe we will have um, we will have um, we, we can look forward to maybe uh, working in some capacity or another. Um, um, with members of the independent company. We already have independent company members uh, signed up with us. Um, and, um, you know, sort of, you know, the more the merrier. Um, and we're, ve we're very hopeful. We've, we believe very strongly that, um, uh, that, that what we're doing would marry up very well with the wider yeah, sure. initiative that has been inspired by We Have Ways. And, and last thing I just wanted to say is um, um, uh, we at um, Their Finest Hour um, are um, very, very um, delighted. We're delighted that Homefront History has been inaugurated. Um, <laughs> we certainly, certainly, um, more than one member of the team um, feels that a, uh, a podcast dedicated to capturing uh, the war on the home front is something that's long overdue. And uh, content wise, we think what you're doing is absolutely fantastic. And oh, brilliant. Thank keep you. it going, keep it going. We're big fans and we would uh, recommend it to anybody who's 
who's considering listening to it, listen to this. This is this is educational and it's entertaining and it's filled with banter. It's great. Brilliant. Thank you so much, mate. Really appreciate that. Uh, look, thanks for coming on. Uh, I'll be in touch soon. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. We'll be we'll be back again soon. Cheers. Thank you.